Hello and welcome once again to Rasslin' Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We're available beyond the FM dial at radionorthland.org. You can listen to us live at noon on Sundays in the Central Time Zone, or you can check out the archives, six years of them, in fact, at radionorthland.org. And we are on the TuneIn app, too. So many different options where you can check out Rasslin' Memories Then and Now, past, present, and future. I'm Glenn Broggett, along with my host, the man down in his mobile studio, the man who's enjoying another summer in Texas. We're talking about the grizzled veteran himself, Mr. Michael McCurdy. It's always a pleasure and an honor to have uh, Rasslin' Memories, another episode uh, ready to go here this week. Oh, yeah, man. I'm always looking forward to each and every week when we have a guest on. So, And it's actually comfortable here in Texas today. So we're not, we're not having the triple digits and all that. So okay. it's kind of comfortable in the mobile studio today. Oh, so every, everything's good in your neighborhood. And, well, you know what? We've been in our neighborhood, the Rasslin' Memories neighborhood, then Rasslin' Memories then and now, uh, we're starting to keep, our, and I guess we're just keeping on, keeping on with the expansion of our Facebook pages, the group, and the uh, the official uh, page as well. Uh, Mike, uh, very impressive first cu- uh, couple of weeks uh, out, the, out the shoot here for Rasslin' Memories then and now. I think we're looking at about, what, three to four hundred members uh, each page so far, so only been out for a couple weeks now, so yeah, I think we're doing really good, and uh, getting a lot more names um, involved in there. They like what we're doing. So, wrestling memories in now. Just getting out there in the social media world. So, yes, making our way through. Making our way through. And yes, uh, we have a very cool site. It's very laid back. We like to share the memories. We like to talk. Get you know, have some people ask some questions. We like to keep it pretty civil on there, and that's that's the best way we're going to do it. If you you know, that's just kind of keeping a peaceful coexistence, man. That's the way it is. But anyway, Mike, you ended up playing Booker Man again. I got a couple of uh, things I'm working on too, my friend, but you have uh, definitely uh, booked a, a great guest. And when I was doing research again, kind of refreshing on this gentleman's career, oh man, it brought back some memories. It brought back a lot of memories, uh, Mr. McCurdy. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, I think our fans are going to enjoy uh, this week's interview and all that. Uh, definite, you know, big career, a lot of time in the old school. Currently promoting here in, uh, you know, my local area. So we'll talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about his WWE career, but Glenn, why don't you go ahead? Let's intro our guest, and you know, let's start sharing some of his wrestling memories. You know, he was a member in the USWA uh, with of the Harlem Knights. Uh, that team moved on to Men on a Mission, and before that, he cut his teeth in the North Carolina area where he grew up, working in the Carolinas. We're going to talk about the Carolinas. We're going to talk about making it to the USWA and, uh, of course, inevitably to the WWF, where he was one half of former WWF Tag Team Champions, along with Mabel, a.k.a. Nelson Frazier, and along with their manager, Oscar. We're talking about men on a mission. He was known as Mo to many. He's known to Bo- as uh, Bobby Horn on his birth certificate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Wrestling Memories Then and Now. Mo. Sir Mo, Mr. Bobby Horn. Hey, what's going on, guys? Hey, we are just enjoying a, a, another edition of Wrestling Memories, and we uh, are so happy to have you on board to share uh, some of the stories of your career, past, present, and future, because you are very much involved today in the pro wrestling business. We'll, we'll talk a whole lot about that uh, here in the hour as well, so we'll give people a good balanced look at uh, the man Bobby Horn and maybe uh, re-familiarize some people with uh, some of the things that you have done in your pro wrestling career. Mm. That's that. Whew. That might take the whole program. Well, you know what? We could expand the time limit. We could do whatever we can because you know what? If you want came to talk, we're here to listen. We just hope we can throw you some questions that uh, will be good and, and, and as open-ended enough about your life and career so we can uh, really establish this dialogue. But first of all, I want to talk about, you know, as we are recording this today, uh, uh, Bobby, uh, it was only just a few days ago. We had, I think, possibly one of the uh, the saddest Sundays in pro wrestling uh, with with the deaths of, of three uh, prominent wrestlers in their day. And one of the gentlemen you had a connection with when you worked uh, in the USWA, and we'll talk more about the USWA here in, in, in our interview uh, on this edition of Wrestling Memories then and now. But I want to talk about... Uh, Brian Lawler, Brian Christopher, and uh, you know it, it's just so so unfortunate that, that he had uh, passed away here this past Sunday. But I want to talk about you and and your connection with Brian when you worked in the USWA because 
Uh, I mean, a lot of people may remember you just for Men on a Mission, some segment of the wrestling population, but you also, but you're also known to a lot of people too for cutting your teeth in, in co- companies like the USWA. But you do have a, a certain connection with Brian Christopher, working with him uh, during that time. Can you can you talk a little bit about uh, Mr. Brian Christopher before we we get into your your life and, and career in full? Well, actually, uh, uh, Nelson and I we showed up. Uh, it was February of nineteen ninety three. We showed up. Uh, to the TV5 studios in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, we just showed up unannounced with our videotapes and picture in hand and uh, met Jeff Jarrett and his dad, Jerry Jarrett, that morning uh, going into the TV studios. And Jerry Jarrett looked at us and, and asked who we were and where we came from and asked what you know who trained us and what we could do. And we were telling them all the things we could do, and he was like, well, if you guys could do all that stuff, I would have heard about you by now. And we said, well, sir, I mean, we, we, if we tell you we could do something, we could do it. And he said, okay. So uh, he, he immediately went inside and rewrote the TV and introduced us on television that morning and uh, said, okay, so uh, tomorrow night you guys come to Jonesboro, Arkansas, and uh, we'll give you a tryout. So he already introduced us on TV Saturday morning, which was a, it was that TV was live. So it was like we were already hired before we even got to trial. Yeah, you were fast tracked. Uh, it was crazy, right? <laughs> we're we're already hired. We're already promoting on TV, but he hasn't even seen us work. So uh, we go to Jonesboro the next night, and we're just sitting in the back room, and this is my first interaction with Brian Christopher. We're sitting in the back room, we're getting dressed, and Brian's brother Kevin comes in and says, hey, do you guys have music? And I'm trying to get dressed, and Brian comes walking through, and I didn't I, I didn't know who Brian was. He just comes walking through. I, I knew it was Brian, but I knew it was Brian Christopher, but I didn't know he was Brian Christopher Lawler. Oh, yeah. I knew he was, you know what I mean? I knew he was Brian Christopher, but I didn't know he was Brian Christopher Lawler. Yeah, it took a while for me too, man, to kind of kind of put together the dots. Uh, just being from a fan side of things, so I, I don't feel so bad knowing that you you had that same sort of feeling as well when you when you finally got the I chance to meet him. I had no clue. I had no clue. So Brian Brian Christopher comes through, and I said, "Hey, Brian." He looks at me. He said, "What's up, man?" And I tossed him my keys. I said, "Man, can you run out to our car and get our music? It's in it's in the cassette player." And Brian tossed my keys back to me. He laughed and said, you're ribbing, right? And he walked off. And I'm like, okay, I thought we were all boys in this business. And uh, Nelson's sitting right next to me. He, he's hitting me with an elbow. He's hitting me with an elbow. I'm like, what, man? What? He's like, dude, you know who that is? I'm like, no, bro. I don't, I, it's Brian Christopher. He's like, yeah. He said, that's Brian Christopher. That's Jerry Lawler's kid. I said, oh, Duh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so talk about feeling stupid, man. Yeah, damn. So that was that was my first that was my first interaction with Brian. And uh, fast forward to the next week on television, Nelson and I make our debut in a six man tag match, and Brian's with us. They done stuck Brian with us in the six man tag because Brian was the top heel at the time. So we were like two hit men that Brian brought in to take out Jerry Lawler, Jeff Jarrett, and and Dan, uh. Uh, it was Danny Davis and Bill Dundee at the time. So, uh, so we worked probably about a month and a half there at USWA. And then one day, Mr. Jarrett came to us. He was getting summertime. He was going to go to a smaller crew and he, he came to us and we were sitting in the dress room. He says, guys, I'm going to need y'all to take the rest of the summer off and come back in the fall when I got a bigger crew. And so basically, basically he was letting us go for the summer and Brian was sitting there and Brian was like, uh, Jerry, you can't do that. He's like, these guys moved to Tennessee from North Carolina to, to, to work for us. He said, you can't just let them go. They don't have anything to go back to. And Mr. Jerry was like, well, Brian, I didn't know that. Brian was like, yeah, man, you you can't just let them go like that. And, so Mr. Jarrett said, okay. He said, uh, you guys give me a call on Monday, and I'll have you a job with WCW or a tryout with WWF. He's like, okay. So, you know, Brian Christopher was 
a very, you know, was a key factor in Nelson and I getting our job with Vince McMahon. Man, that is, you know, what a what a link uh, to to a, a big pivotal role and pivotal part in, of of you and Nelson's career to have a, a guy like that in your corner, especially, you know, he kind of let the bygones be bygones after that. You know, you kind of figured out who he was. He was cool about that, and uh, just some of the th- doors that were uh, opened because of Brian. That that, that that's just a, a wonderful story to share, and how how that progressed for you guys too. Yeah, it it uh, it, it really worked out well, and. Uh... And then after, even after we came back from, we did our run with Vince. I came back to Memphis, and Brian and I used to, they used to stick me and Brian together all the time. And we would have these crazy matches. I remember one match, uh, we called a spot. I hit him with a spin wheel kick and broke his nose. Blood was going everywhere. And uh come to the back and tell him, man, I'm sorry, blah, blah. He's like, Man, don't worry about it, dog. That's the way it goes, dog. That's the way it goes. You know, it's all good. It's all good. And there was never any animosity, you know. And so uh, the last time I heard from Brian was, I would have to look I would have to look at my messages, but the last time I heard from Brian was um, uh, July the 1st. Oh, wow. That wasn't really all that long ago, man. No. It was, it was July the 1st was a, Last time I heard from him, and uh, he uh, sent me a picture, and uh, he said, uh, he said we had it was a picture me, him, Nelson, me, him, Nelson, and uh, Scott Levy, Johnny Polo, or Raven, because we were all a group back in, and Mike Sample, we were all a group back in Memphis, and he was like. Man, I found this picture, man. I know we were some kind of group. Do you remember the name of the group at the time? And I, 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 I couldn't, I couldn't think of it. I could not think of the name of the group. But I think we were called like the first family or something. But uh, and then I look up less than a month later, and he's gone. I can't. It, it's just hard to fathom, man. Oh, I, I agree with you, and you know, and you had to go through this uh, w- with Nelson's passing too. Uh, guys that were just so so close to to your story, man, and and it goes back further as we go back into your life. Uh, you know, meeting up with Nelson. I mean, just the long term friendship that you guys had, and uh, how early on you guys met up. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your your, your early career. Uh, getting getting into the business. I mean, you grew up in the Carolinas. That was pro wrestling, mid Atlantic pro wrestling, hotbed of wrestling. Let's talk about uh, me- meeting up with Nelson and and talk about your life growing up in the Carolinas. Okay, well, um, I had I had recently gotten out of the military, and being in the military, being in the military makes you gives you a sense of camaraderie and 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 you know being a part of something, wanting to be a being a, being a part of something bigger than yourself, you know. And uh, I was just sitting around one day thinking, man, you know, what could I do that would I could make a name for myself? But you know, I wasn't thinking a superstar, just just some kind of notoriety, short of robbing a bank or being some big time dope dealer, you know. And I thought to myself, you know, everybody knows Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. Maybe I could, you know be like Hulk Hogan or Ric Flair. And so I went to a local indie show and uh, just so happens Gene Anderson, the Minnesota Wrecking Crew, was on that show. And uh, uh, I I approached him uh, after the show and asked about training and stuff. And he said, look, kid, he said, meet me here on this date, bring $300, and uh, we'll give you a tryout, and then we'll go from there. A week later, I showed up with my three hundred dollars. It's this big field, and for about four hours, he ran me until I, I suffered complete muscle failure. And uh, but I had recently gotten out of the military, so I was I was I was in I was in physically really good shape, so I, I was good. And uh, so after the, after that, he was like, "You didn't quit on me, kid." He said, "So I'll train you." Said, it's going to be three thousand dollars. Says. Uh, the next practice you come to, bring me five hundred, and then it'll be five hundred a month until you're through paying. So it was it was probably two weeks before the next class 
And when I showed up for the next class, Nelson showed up with his dad, and uh, Nelson showed up for a tryout. And uh, so I told him, I, I went up to him, I met him, and I told him, I said, man, whatever you do, I said, you know, with this running and all this stuff, whatever you do, just don't stop. Just don't quit. I said, if you got to walk, walk, but don't quit. And at this time, Nelson was probably about 490 pounds. He hadn't hit. He hadn't hit. He hadn't hit 500 pounds. He was about 486, 490 at the time. He was. He was more bottom heavy than he was just all around a big guy. And so uh, when he started out running, I started out running with him, talking to him, you know, trying to encourage him, and we get him through the tryout, and he makes it. And so of course he had the same deal that I had, and. So we started training together. So my first practice, he shows up for his trial. So we started training at the exact same time. And that, that was the summer of 1990. And so because he lived four hours away, uh, I invited him to move uh, up near Charlotte where I live, and we got a place together. And so Nelson and I not only trained together, but we lived together in the, in the same house until from the summer nineteen ninety until the summer the winter of nineteen ninety five. Uh and the and the winter of nineteen ninety five was right after uh we turned heel in uh WWF and that weekend I came home and we were working out in the backyard with one of our best friends and I broke my leg in three places. I had surgery that night, and then two days later, some of my homeboys drove me home to North Carolina, and that was that was kind of when Nelson was on his own, and I was on my own. We were still, uh, you know, partners or whatever, but that was when we kind of wasn't living together anymore. Okay, okay. Uh, what I, what what was your impressions of, of Gene Anderson? Uh, you know, he was your, your trainer, and you had you worked. During your training process, uh, he ended up uh, unfortunately passing away. But what was your impressions of Gene, and what what how did you react, and what did you do uh, for your second act? I mean, because you were in the process of getting trained, getting ring ready, you guys, and and this had, this unfortunate incident happened, uh, him passing away. But who stepped up and, and and kind of helped you further on with your enhanced your training as uh, in Gene's place? Well, so Gene passed away, and Gene was one tough son of a gun. But uh, Gene passed away, and uh, right down the road, probably about 12 miles down the road from where Gene was training us, Ivan Koloff and Bobby Fulton had a school. And uh, we, we would see Ivan all the time, and Ivan was such a nice man. He would always say, hey, guys, if you need a place to work out, you can always come over to the school and work out with our, you know, our students. And uh, he didn't try to kill us on price or nothing like that. So we would always go and work out with Ivan, and uh, Ivan, Ivan helped us out a lot with our psychology or whatever. And at the same time, this new organization in Charlotte had started up. Uh, it was the North American Wrestling Alliance, and then they changed the name to South Atlantic Pro Wrestling. And Manny Fernandez, the Raging Bull, was booking. So he was a book over there, and we went to work over there. And at the same time, he had a school, so we went. We went to Manny School also, so so there we go. We started Gene Anderson. We get some psychology training from Ivan Kolov. We get some aggressive training from the Raging Bull Manny Fernandez. And then once that company closed down, we went to work for the Italian Stallion and George South, who were running three, four shows a week in the Carolinas. Man, we went and worked for them for like two and a half years. And George South was instrumental in helping us put all of our tag team stuff together. Yeah, you hear and a lot. Oh, go ahead. And he was instrumental in us going to Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned uh, you know moving on with uh, from, from training with Bobby and Ivan and to M- Manny Fernandez. You mentioned how double tough Manny was, and you could watch some of Manny's matches. Man, that guy just knew how to go. He had a motor on him in his prime, and he was just. He, he he looked so good in the ring, man. In his in his day in the nineteen eighties, it's just with that that big flying forearm and just the overall toughness. 
Yeah. Yeah, man, man, man was man was a different character. You know. So Oh, I was just going to say, uh, I was going to move on to, uh, you t- You worked with both, you know, with George South and the Italian Stallion on their uh, joint venture promotion. What would you say uh, were the ultimate comparisons between the two gentlemen as far as uh, working for them and, and, and learning the business, good, bad, and ugly at that time, as you're, you're learning and cutting your teeth? Well, there's a distinct difference. The difference was they both were old school, so they had that old school mentality. But the difference between George and Stallion was George was a Christian. George didn't lie. George didn't try to scam people. Stallion, on the other hand, I'm not going to say he tried to scam anybody, but Stallion was all about Stallion. You know, he, he, I mean, he didn't go out of his way to, to help nobody. And how frustrating was it to, until you guys decided to, to finally, uh, you know, call it good and make that that take that plunge uh to, to memphis on that uh you know on on the word of george south who gave you some really good sage advice well what, what happened was stallion forced forced our hand and i'm glad he did we uh we had been working for him for over two years and when we started the crowds were 40 50 people and when we got ready to leave the crowds were 300, 400 people, you know. I mean, we were, we were the biggest tag team in the world, world short of uh, Earthquake and Typhoon, you know. And uh, we went and worked this show in uh, West Virginia, and it was snowing. And then there was a show the next day, another four hours away. And Nelson and I didn't have any money. And so we went to Stadium. It was I mean, we had worked for two years. They would make the money couple times he promised us money, he never gave it to us. And so this particular night, we knew we didn't have money to get to the next town, and we had never really asked for money. So this particular night, it was a nice crowd at the show. We went to stay and asked him for money, you know, so we can get gas and get to the next town. And he gave us five bucks. Damn. At that point, we're like, man, you know, we know our words. We, we, we know that these people are not just showing up, you know. You know, you know what I mean? It's like you can you can you can you can tell. It's not it's not about an ego or anything like that, but if you walk into a place and they're drawing 20, 30, 40, 50 people and you walk in and you know, you're the only you're the, you're the only common denominator and they start drawing 100, 200, 300, 400 people you you had to think that hey you know we're contributing to that hey you know we never say hey man you owe us a hundred bucks a night or anything like that we just say man we we don't have gas money to get to the next town can you help us out and he gave us five dollars so we were like man screw it the next week we took our last forty dollars that we had man and we went to memphis tennessee we drove to memphis went and slept Slept in the car that night in front of the TV studio. And next morning woke up and met Jeff Jarrett and his dad. And and, and that's where it all began. And what an interesting history for, for Memphis wrestling, especially when it comes to studio wrestling. And uh, that was one of those programs uh, you'd hear in, in, in recent years in documentaries and information and books and such about Memphis's television ratings and just how big of a thing Memphis pro wrestling was, even as it was getting towards the end into the late 80s, into the 90s, just still how much of a connection it, it, it was uh, to the city as far as Jerry Lawler uh, and the Jarrett's and company. And, and you guys got moving, getting in there. I think what George South kind of recommended to you was probably a really good move because uh, you got to learn probably a, a at one of the last true territories in the great territory game of professional wrestling before uh, things just started uh, becoming bigger and, and more corporate. You're exactly right. Uh, basically, uh, they were still doing good business, man. They were, you know, even up, up through 96, 97, they were still doing good business. They were still, Running the Mid South Coliseum, I mean, 
we went and worked for Vince, and we come back, and they still in business, you know, and they closed the USWA, but then they opened another company. Same thing in, 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 in Channel 5 Studios, Power Pro Wrestling, you know, and they went on through 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, I think, and they were doing well, and then I think uh, – Vince, they were they were part of the developmental system, and then Vince pulled, and I think he moved it to either Florida at the time or uh, Louisville, Kentucky, one of the two. I'm not sure. It might have been both of them, but uh, and that that's pretty much when they, you know, stopped doing studio wrestling at Channel Five Studios. A few years back, a few years later, they came back and started doing studio wrestling at the Channel 30 studios, but it, it just, it didn't catch on like, like the USWA did. And and being able to uh, work too with 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 guys in the ring like uh, Jerry Lawler, a man that uh, is a true just a true legend icon, uh, not only in pro wrestling but just in, he is just admired in Memphis, Tennessee. It's he is the second king, of course. When they talk about the kings of Memphis, it's Elvis, it's Jerry Lawler. Right. You know, I worked a lot with Jerry, and my heart goes out to him right now because I know how much that kid meant to him, Brian. It's just a, it's just a sad day for uh, the Memphis wrestling era right now. Everybody's hurting. Oh, most definitely. Uh, you're listening to Wrestling Memories Then and Now. I'm uh, talking with Mr. Bobby Horn. People remember him as uh, Mo from uh, WWF Tag Team Men on a Mission. He was also part of another, well, with the same partner, but with another big tag team, the Harlem Knights, with Nelson Frazier, a.k.a. Mabel. And I'm going to bring into the conversation Mr. Michael McCurdy to uh, ask a few questions here on this uh, second half of Wrestling Memories Then and Now. Michael, are you ready to go? Um, yeah, uh, first question I'd like to ask is, during your time um, in Memphis, working USW and I, did you ever have a chance to work or have you ever had a chance to work with uh, Brickhouse Brown, another man that we unfortunately lost on Sunday along with uh, Brian Christopher? Oh, yeah. Uh, I worked I worked a lot of matches against Brickhouse, and I worked a lot of matches with Brickhouse Brown. And Brickhouse uh, Brick was, uh, Brick was one of those – I guess you can call one of those gems, man. You know, when you talk about a gem, you talk about somebody that that's so good, but very few people knew about it. Unless you were in, the, unless you were in USWA or in the Texas area and knew him from world class or whatever, you know, uh, because he had he had a short run in the Mid Atlantic area, but he never he never just got his he never got his just due. But he was very talented person, very talented, and I guess some would say he was he was very outspoken. And in our business, sometimes being outspoken is not a good thing. Now, um, another one I want to talk about for just a moment is you know didn't realize at this time, but you said you started training with him. He was there for your first class. Um, can we talk a little bit about Nelson Fraser, your tag partner? Because in my opinion, he's one of the most underrated big men in the industry. I was always a fan. And I was just wondering what was it like? Just, you know, who was, the, what was the man like? Ah, uh, 500 pound Teddy Brown, 500 pound. You know, the gimmick he did later in his career, the world's largest love machine. Yes. I'm talking, I'm talking about, I was with this guy every day for, living in the same house every day for six years. And I guarantee you from sun up to sundown, this guy would have women in and out the door. Big old giant teddy bear, loved people, loved to laugh. Uh, he was an artist. He could draw. He was a singer. He could sing. I mean, there was nothing he could do. I mean, I got some videotapes where Nelson at 500 pounds was doing sunset flips. 
doing drop kicks, doing spin wheel kicks. You know, Nelson always wanted to be the best big man in the business. And the one person that he looked up to that he got to work uh, in one-on-one competition for a while and learn a lot from was Bam Bam Bigelow. You know, because Bam Bam was very agile, and Nelson wanted to be the same way. And he he was just a wonderful human being, man. And he got a bad rap because in the beginning, what people don't realize is Nelson was 20 years old, man. He was 20, 21 years old and, you know, 500 pounds, living the dream, but he hadn't learned how to, in some cases, he hadn't learned how to control his weight. You know, and, you know, there were, there was mishaps sometimes and people would get hurt in the beginning, you know, nothing purposely, but, you know, it wasn't until the second run when he came back in 99, uh, when they turned him into Viscera, that time off, he took that time off and he learned, you know, better how to control his weight and a little bit more about the politics of the business because, Neither of us knew him, and so we got into a lot of trouble, man. We got we got into a lot of trouble, but uh, yeah, I think if I if I had to rate, I wouldn't even say top ten. I'd say top five. I would say Nelson ranked right up there in the top five as far as big men in this business, man. You know, because he was five hundred pounds, but he could do stuff like a cruiserweight, easy. I would have to agree with the top five listing. Like I said, I don't think he was given the credit that he deserved. Like I said, very underrated man. Now, you went through USWA as the Harlem Knights. You explained Brian Christopher got you in there. He also helped you get to the WWF. Now, the WWF, that's where a lot of your exposure came from. Can you tell us about the beginnings and the creation of Men on a Mission? Because by that time you came there, you were paired with Oscar a uh, gentleman I've met in Vegas a few times who was very outgoing. I've always enjoyed talking with Oscar. But can you tell us a little bit about how that started and what was your opinion of going in and becoming, you know, Mo and Mabel of Men on a Mission? Okay, so so um, WrestleMania 9, Nelson and I are working in Memphis. Oscar, of course, is doing... Uh, the opening act for Andrew Dice Clay in Las Vegas and just happens to be stepping onto an elevator mm-hmm. and there's Vince McMahon, Macho Man, and Jerry the King Lawler. And Oscar was a freestyle rapper, so he just starts rapping, doing a rap about those guys. And Vince fell in love with it. Numbers were exchanged. <sighs> Time passes. Nelson and I get a tryout right after the second day. They come back and they say, we're interested. We're going to fly you guys up. Uh, we, we fly up uh, to New York. They have a limo pick us up at the airport, take us up to, at the time it was called Titan Tower, uh, take us on a tour of the, of the tower. Uh, we end up in this boardroom. J.J. Dillon, the head of talent relations at the time, we sit down at this table. In comes Vince, introduces himself. We all shake our hands. We all sit down. And Vince just kind of leans back in his chair and says, okay, guys, this is what I got for you. And he he already had the name of the group. He already had the individual names. He says, you're three guys from Harlem, New York. You you grew up in the ghetto. Uh, you're 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 gonna be called Mom, M O M, men on a mission, and your your mission is to to inspire other young folks that grew up in the ghettos. You know that they can get out and they can stay out drugs and all this stuff. You Clemmy, which is which is Oscar's name. His name is Clemmy Greg Gerard. So you Clemmy. You're called Oscar, you, Bobby, you're Mo, and Big Man, you're Mabel. And Nelson, Nelson just kind of looked down like, 
come on, Vince. That, I, I finally get my dream, and you, you, you want to give me a girl's name. And Vince looked down, and he kind of chuckles, and he goes, says, look at it this way. He says, Oscar and Mo are the two guys that's going to have the most fun. You, you're going to be the badass because you're always mad because people are picking at your name. Remember that song, A Boy Called Sue? Well, you're called Mabel, and that's why. When somebody calls you Mabel, it pisses you off, and you want to destroy stuff. And so that's why you're called Mabel. And and that's how that's how the gimmick, that's how it was put together. Vince already knew what he wanted. So from there, uh, he pulls out contracts. He slides one to Oscar, one to me, one to Nelson. And he says, okay, the quicker you get these back to us, the quicker you can get paid. We're going to send you a check each week until we bring you all on the road. And uh, I don't think Nelson and I even looked at that contract or had anybody looked at it. We signed it. We handed it back to him. And by the time we got home, I think that was on a Wednesday, by the time we got home Friday, it was a check in the mail. And we received a check from them every Friday. I think I think we we were home off the road for like seven months. So for seven months that before we ever even went and done the first TV taper, we sat at home and drew a check. Now, what what was your debut? Uh, what was the Men on a Mission debut like? I, because it was an interest, it was an interesting gimmick. It was very colorful. You know, the fans seemed to, you know, react to it. You kind of shot straight to the main event as far as you know tag team wrestling goes. But what was it like when you first debuted as Men on a Mission? As far as just character, crowd reaction. Uh, you know that that morning, that morning of the TV tapers, we were we were in the building early, so we it was like a dress rehearsal. We like rehearsed. Coming out the entranceway, the throw the hands in the air, the waving like you just don't care. We to the ring and out of the ring. Vince wanted it a certain way, and uh, so I mean, when when the music hit and we walked out that curtain for the first time, people had saw the vignettes because the vignettes played for like six or seven weeks before we ever even showed up on television. So. People people knew who we were, for sure. You know when we, when we came when we came out of that curtain, and uh, it took maybe two television tapers before they really got behind what Oscar was saying with the rap, getting them to say the whoop there it is, you know. And they, I mean, they just it it was like man, they we caught on so fast that. We 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 pissed a lot of people off real fast, and that's what was, that was that was the hard part about it. Now, who were some of the um, early who were some of the early guys that you got to work with in your first uh, went into the WWF? Okay, so we started out with uh, Steve Dahl and Rex King. They came in from Memphis, also. They were known as Well Done. So we started out we started out working those guys. And uh, because the Steiner brothers were in a program against the uh, Quebecers. And uh, so we worked well done. Steiner brothers were in a program with the Quebecers and the Head Shrinkers at that time. So we went from the well done to the Head Shrinkers to no well done to the Mounties, because the Steiner brothers left and went to WCW. We went to to the Mounties, then to the Head Shrinkers. Uh, we worked some. We worked some. We worked some uh, six man tag matches where it was me and Nelson and Lex Luger against Jeff Jarrett and and the, the Canadian Mounties. Uh, me and Nelson worked Tatanka. And Bam Bam, me, Nelson, and Lex Luger worked Mike Rotunda, King Kong Bundy, and Tatanka. And then we worked an extensive program 
against the smoking guns. Now, you came in to the WWF. They were experiencing a resurgence. You know, the, the attendance was huge and all that. You know, the toys, the shirts, the merchandise, all that. It was a big time for uh, the WWF Diamond. You guys come in. You just listed all these names. And, I mean, and these are, you know, you don't, you're not coming in working, you know, the uh, development. Of, you're working some big names. Right. So, you know, what was like going in? I mean, like you said, it was a fast track. Um, you got a little heat from this because of your fast ride stuff. But going in working that kind of talent in the WWF at that time with all the with all the hype, with all the numbers, with the fan attendance and all that, you guys came from Memphis, which, you know, smaller territory. What were kind of some of the, uh, the things you had to kind of get used to? What was the, some of the adjustments, you know, to be made to come from Memphis into the WWF machine. Well, the biggest thing was working in Memphis. We learned a lot because we worked Jeff Jarrett. We worked Jeff and Lawler for a while. And then Lawler took the job doing commentary events. And then we worked Jeff and the big boss man a few times. So we learned a lot from that. And, uh, and then we worked the, the moon dogs for, for a long while. So we learned we learned a lot, but basically going in there as far as the wrestling part goes, we were confident in being there. Uh, we were confident in what we were doing. Our biggest problem was, uh, you know, it's it, politics. You know what I mean? It's politics is dealing with, you know, the jealousies and stuff of that nature. You know, I mean, and. You know, it was every night. It wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, you know, USWA. You'd work three or four nights, and you'd be off for a week. Or this was twenty-two days a month on, three days off, twenty-two days a month on, and it was every night. It was. You know, by the time you go from one town work, go to the hotel, get some sleep, and have to get up, and go to the next town, and. You know, that was the biggest thing. The the biggest thing was adjusting to having to work that schedule, 286, 300 days a year. All right, I'm going to bring Glenn back in. Uh, Glenn, do you have some more questions for uh, Bobby? Yeah, I just wanted to ask a couple of quick questions. So you talked about adjusting to life uh, on the road in a national company as opposed to some of the territories that you work. Uh, injuries must have also played a factor uh, in most wrestlers' careers, especially combined with the road life. That that also must just have to be a drain, uh, not only on your, your physical health, but also your mental health, and, and just trying to keep yourself... Uh, you know, uh, going in the wrestling business because if you uh, miss your spot, there's always somebody there that's ready to take it. Well, that's just the thing. You can't, you can't, you can't miss your spot. I mean, I mean, you just can't. Not then, you couldn't miss your spot. Like now, guys get hurt. They take six or seven weeks off. You know what I mean? And they come back, and they're some of them don't seem to miss a step. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. back then, you couldn't afford that. Like a, a prime example. Nelson and I turned heel uh, in uh, February of 1995 in Charleston, South Carolina. We beat up Oscar, and we beat up the Smoky Guns, and we turned heel. It was late February. After that run, we went home. We went we went home for a week, and that Friday on the 5th of March, I broke my leg in three places and got a rod and nine screws. To, to repair it. Now, WrestleMania 11 is coming up. I just broke my leg. I just had surgery. I didn't call Vince McMahon and say, hey, I broke my leg. I had surgery. I'm going to be out for 12 weeks. I kept a cast on my leg for 11 days. I cut it off. I bought me one of those ankle braces with the, the tie-up strings. I tied up my high-tech boots as tight as I could, and I went back to work. And I worked every day with that broken, you know, steel rod and screw repaired leg. You know, never once told the office that I broke that leg. Never once missed the show working because of that broke leg. You know, back in in that day, (laughs) there was no guaranteed contracts, man. 
There's no, okay, you're going to get $100,000, and if you get hurt, you're still going to get that $100,000 while you recover. No, if you didn't work, you didn't get paid. You know, so to this day, to this day, the the company never knew that I worked with a broke leg. You know, I just, I just, I just went to work, you know, and that's what you had to do, man, because if you didn't, you lost your spot, you lost your spot. Mm-hmm. Because it, back then it was out of sight, out of mind. The business is the business is different now than it was back then. Back in that day, back in that day, it was common practice. You know, if you had uh, two black guys on the roster, and you got two new black guys, two black guys had to go. You know, mm-hmm. so so we we were very particular about. You know, not nobody wanted to give up their spot. Nobody. You know, I, I remember when Nelson and I came in, you know, that that's exactly what Kamala said. Him and him and um him and um him and big S- black guy. Slick. Uh, Slick was in there too and there was Tony Atlas for a while. It's guys that they they, they get from Tony was there, but Curtis Hughes. Mr. Hughes, yeah. Who I'm thinking of. Uh you know, we, we walked through that dress room, they like, Who are these guys? And and you heard you could hear somebody say, Oh shit. Somebody getting ready to go. If these two guys right here get a job, you know, a couple of us finna go. And it was like a month or so later, I think Kamala was gone and Curtis Hughes was gone. Which which surprised me. But that's just the way the business was, man. And so if you got a spot, you didn't do any Man, <laughs> I'm telling you, dude, there was time. Man, there was one time on the TV taping, I went over the top the top rope and landed on the side of the apron and dislocated my shoulder. Mm-hmm. I rode back into the ring, finished my my spot, tagged Nelson in, and leaned on that corner right there until Nelson finished them off. You know, and 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 got to the back and. Uh, there was this doctor up in Pennsylvania that was at all those shows around the Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey area. He was in the back, came in the back, laid down on the floor. And he popped my shoulder back in place, you know, and there was like a 20-day run right after that. I never missed a day. You, you just, you couldn't, man. You could not. You could not. You could not. And even to this day, I, I've had uh, – I had kidney transplant surgery, and then I had a lower colon surgery last week. And I've got, I probably got five bottles of pain pills sitting right here on my, 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 my nightstand that I haven't touched. Because I, I, re, I refuse, even then I wouldn't take pain pills. I would do Tylenol, but I wouldn't take no, you know, no narcotic. Because I wasn't going to take a chance of getting strung out on no narcotics, you know, and, and risk losing my job or something. And unfortunately, and, that, and unfortunately, that was a trend at the time. You know, unfortunately, that was, uh, you know, the pro wrestling gets the stigma because of, of guys that, you know, because of the, the life of a wrestler, the life on the road, and, and just all the injuries mounting up, succumb to the pills, and the pills get mixed with alcohol, and all kinds of things happen, and the next thing you know, we lose another guy. And it's just a sad thing that was a, a big trend, and it seemed like there was just more and more people passing away in that certain period of time from that era. Well, you're, 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 you know what? You're 100% right when you say, at the time, that was the trend. You, you, I mean, you you had you literally had to take something to go to sleep, and you literally had to take something to get up the next day. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This wasn't no off days. You know, you you had to you had to find it within yourself or your body, make your body go to to be able to go and perform and perform at that level. And you're always trying to perform at a higher level the next day than the day before because you always got somebody that's running up behind you trying to take your spot, man. You know, and if they could take your spot, if they could take your spot with their work, you know, or with their talent, you know, as far as getting over whatever, then they do something political to get your spot. You know, so mm-hmm. you, it, it was just a, 
it was just a never ending battle, man. Just, just to stay there. And when you eventually uh, left uh, the WWF, what was like uh, life post WWF for you? Getting off the uh, the treadmill of, of of the travel, you know, it's basically. You know, either airplane, car, hotel, wrestling, uh, get to the arena, go back to the hotel, or travel to another town. What was like getting off the treadmill uh, of of the WWF? That was the WWF. Um, for me, for me, all of the uh, the stress of trying to maintain the position. You know what I mean? At one point, had me suicidal. So when when I left, and Nelson, and I left. Uh, in January 1996, we kind we basically walked out on a contract. See, a lot of people, a lot of people would have it be told that we got fired or, you know, or whatever. But we we basically said we couldn't do it anymore, and and we left. And when I left there, I left there thinking, man, I I don't I don't want to be in a position to where I get so stressed out about work again that I that I contemplate suicide ever again i i contemplated seriously and, and i was almost there but god intervened and uh so you know i came home and i thought you know i'm gonna do my own thing and that's i came home and i started my own promotion i and I, so i've been i've been promoting i've been training training people and promoting since 1996 you know, this this is how I've made my living. Mm-hmm. You know, since 1996, there was there was a period in there for uh, four years where I worked a full time job and promoted. I worked with uh, within the juvenile justice system, and then uh, I worked also. Uh, I went on the road. I was I thought you know I want to, I want to travel again, so I I took a job as a long haul truck driver for about three years. From 2004, actually four years, from 2004 to 2008. So I, I took a long-haul truck driving job, and in between that, I'd take bookings. Like, I'd contact the promoter in Nebraska and say, hey, I'm going to be in Nebraska on this date, you know, and I, I'd take bookings that way. and I'd, I'd show up because I'm dropping a load, drop a load and go work the show and and go back and pick my truck up and head on down the road to the next town. So I've always, I've always traveled. I've always loved traveling. You know, that part of the job, the planes, the rental car, that was nothing, man. That was that, that part of it was nothing. The hard part was just trying to keep your job, man. Just, just the, the politics of it all at the time, man. Because I don't know if it's like that now, but at the time, back in, in that day, certain people had a lot of power and a lot of control. And just on one person's word, you could get fired, man. You could <laughs> you could wake up one day and show up and and be fired. So uh, that 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 was that was that was a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring in Mr. Michael McCurdy uh, for a few more questions here uh, as we're heading down the home stretch. Uh, Mike, you have a couple of questions uh, for uh, Mr. Bobby Horn. Um, I'd like to talk about what he's doing currently. Um, Bobby, you know, we're both in the uh, DFW area, and right now it's <clears throat> pretty much a hotbed for uh, independent wrestling. There's a lot of great organizations around. Yours um, being one of them, you are the owner and promoter of SOAR, championship wrestling but your promotion stands out a little bit differently than the others because a lot of what you do is you do a lot of things for the community and for the kids so can you tell us a little bit about soar championship wrestling how you got started and how you're contributing to the uh community okay so so uh uh my wife uh denise jones she is is actually her deal because I, I wanted to get away from from promoting, and she she hated wrestling until she went to an indie show in Tennessee. Uh, we went to Tennessee for my daughter's graduation, and she went to an indie show, and it was in this small building that held about a hundred people, 
with like a 14-foot ring, and there was only six guys on the show. It was me, my son, and four other guys that showed up, and, and we made a show out of it. But the building was packed. And all the way back from Tennessee to Texas, she was asking all these questions about promoting and how much it costs to get in that building, and she saw all the people in there. And just out of her mouth, she says, we can do a better show than that. And I looked at her like, we who? She's like, me and you. I was like, uh, we don't own a ring. We don't, we, don't, we don't have any of that stuff. And she said, it don't matter. We can still do it. And it was like, that was like May of 2016. And so uh, we did our very first show in October 2016. We rented a ring from uh, uh, Rudy, Rudy Boy Gonzalez in San Antonio. Show was supposed to start at seven o'clock. The ring didn't show up to eight thirty. You know, so, so it was a it was the first one, and it was crazy. But that show was a benefit show for uh, the Lou Gehrig Disease Foundation, and so we thought, okay, that's what we'll do. We'll we'll do these shows, but they gotta be there's gotta be a purpose for it, not just doing wrestling just to do wrestling. And uh, so we did that show. And we did one other benefit, and then we was like, okay, let's just focus on one thing. And we decided that we had a mission, and the mission was to save a million kids. So we came up with this idea that we had a championship belt made for one black, one pink, for a little boy and for a little girl. And Denise came up with this, this chore sheet. And whenever we have a show, the parents bring their kids, at intermission, every show, the kids come into the ring, and we talk to them about uh, different subjects, bullying mostly, and good behavior at home. And we always got some kind of surprise for them, a treat bag or armband or T-shirt or something like that. And then Denise would pass out those forms. Each month, the parents would bring those kids back. And what started out is like 15 kids a month, it's now up to like 75 little kids a month, and they bring those sheets back, and the, and the boy and the girl that scores the highest points as far as chores go win a championship belt to take home with them for the month. And so then they have to work harder that month to keep it when they come back the next month. And so that's basically what we do is everything that we do is centered around kids, and we get a lot of heat in the Dallas-Fort Worth area because a lot of the guys that we book they're so toned down in what they're allowed to do. You know what I mean? You know, I'll give you an example. Like, Dirty Andy Dalton can't be Dirty Andy Dalton at our show. He can be Andy Dalton, but he can't be Dirty Andy Dalton. He can't do the dirty stuff because, you know, we're putting on a product for children. So everything's cleaned up. Everything's toned down. There's, there's no language. There's no chop shots. There's none of that stuff. But it worked. But it pisses a lot of true wrestlers off and some fans that like the super indie shows. You know, they want to see all the crazy stuff. But that that's our niche, and we, we try to stick to it. And a lot of people try to talk us into going a different way, but that's that's not our mission. Our mission is to save children, and that's what we use this vehicle for. Well, okay, I, I stand corrected. You know, my apologies to your wife. I did not realize that she was the uh... – the owner of it and all, but how is the uh, community taken to it? Because I unfortunately, you know, work-wise, I can't make a show. Um, I read about them. You, I see a lot of the talent you use, but how is the community uh, taken to soar? Because you guys seem to be doing really well. Oh, man. We, I mean, we uh, just this week, we hadn't been doing it, but just this week we asked the parents to uh, post, you know, testimonies this week about, you know, what they like about sore and why do they go to sore and man we 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 get a we I think last month was our our biggest show to date and uh we probably had maybe 80 kids last month you know you're talking about 80 kids from ages 3 to 9 3 to 10 inside that ring you know listening to a message about good behavior about bullying in school. So, I mean, the parents love it. The kids enjoy it. 
you know, every character that we have, we don't have any characters that are the darkest character we got that is a is a baby face is unholy Gregory James. <laughs> you know, and, and last month was the first time and he's worked for us for quite a while, but last month was the first time he actually came out and got in the ring with the kids. And they and they they love this guy. They 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 love the character. So uh I think we're doing something right. I think we're on the right path. Uh, our, our company is a registered nonprofit in the state of Texas. Uh, it's, it's called Kid Soar Incorporated. And Soar is that name. Denise created that name uh, because she's a, there's no such word as former. She's a Marine. And in her eyes, the Marines are better than the Army, the Air Force, and the Navy. So she thought of Soar standing out above the rest. Marines stand out above the rest, so that's where the name came from, and uh, and 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 so she she she's meticulous about what we do. She don't try to tell me in the beginning. She tried to tell me how to run the wrestling, but then she got to where she realized, okay, I'm fighting a losing battle because I'm not going to tell them how to run the wrestling. I'm just going to sit back and watch. And so now she's she she's actually become a big wrestling fan. Every Monday night and Tuesday night, she's in front of that TV watching her wrestling, as she calls it, and she's starting to, she's she's getting real educated. Now she's starting to be able to say, uh-oh, I saw that. I caught that. He was talking. I finally saw somebody talking. You know? So she saw Finn Balor talking last night on, on Raw, and she had to rewind it three times to show me. So she's getting educated. The families are getting educated. The kids are getting educated, and uh, we're we're just enjoying and having a good time. Now, on a personal note, just even outside the ring, uh, I mean, you know, we're friends on Facebook and all that. But you've offered, you know, people that are having you know problems and need someone to talk to. You've opened up to them and given them the opportunity if they want, they can contact you and talk to you. So, on a personal note, you're trying to help people as well. Right. Uh, I'm telling you that seven days a week, uh, generally, um, my, my clock goes off about nine o'clock because that's when I have to take my anti-rejection medication for my kidney transplant I had four months ago. Uh, so generally from nine o'clock until about three thirty AM, unless I got some doctor stuff going on, uh, I'm talking to people. I'm, I'm, we're talking about real people that's got real problems, you know, anything from depression to relationship stuff to religious stuff to, I, I could probably be on the phone five hours a day, just talking to somebody back and forth about politics or something. But every day I'm talking to a lot of people and a lot of people are hurting out there, man. A lot of, a lot of people are hurting financially. A lot of people are hurting mentally. You know, their relationships are falling apart. You know, they they can't pay their bills. And man, it's my my biggest problem is man. With some of them is I wish I could help. You know, but I'm just not. I'm just not in that position. You know, I one of the things that inspire me is like I looked up today on television. I saw where LeBron James just opened up this school. And he's doing the exact stuff that I wanted to do. I've always wanted to do myself, but never was financially able to do it. And I know that. And so because I can't do certain things financially, I can still physically be there for people to help them through, you know, these tough times. And uh, and I try to be because there there are times and there were times when I needed somebody to be there for me because I was in a dark place and, uh, you know, wanted to end my life. And, you know, I hear, I hear people, I hear people talk about, oh man, that dude right there, he, he was cool. And, you know, I can't see that dude right there wanting to commit suicide or committing suicide. He wasn't that kind of person. You know, he loved life or whatever. Yeah. People say the same thing about me, but what they don't know is, I attempted to take my life before. 
So you never know. You just never know what people are going through, you know. And so if I reach out to somebody at 3 o'clock in the morning and say, are you okay? It's because I see you online at 3 o'clock in the morning like I'm online at 3 o'clock in the morning. And generally, people that's online at 3 o'clock in the morning either, you know, work during the day or work work second shift and come home and it takes them a few hours to wind down or they got some serious issues on their mind and they're looking for somebody to talk to, even if they don't reach out. Sometimes it's a matter of somebody else reaching out, man. And so that's what I try to do. If I see somebody online, their, their, their friendship green light is lit up at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to send them a message, hey, are you okay? And they might say, yeah, or no, I'm kind of going through something and, you know, and, and, and it'll spark up a conversation. They'll be like, thank you. I really need to talk to somebody. And, and you and you reached out at the right time. So that, that's kind of what I want to do. I, I want to be there for everybody. Well, it looks like uh, it's a time for uh, the timekeepers giving me the, the signal here. It looks like it's time to wrap up another edition of Wrestling Memories then and now. I want to thank uh, my co-host Mike McCurdy uh, once again for uh, providing such a wonderful guest and providing some great questions. And of course, uh, our guest, Mr. Bobby Horn. Bobby, we're going to have to have you back again sometime, my friend. I feel like uh, we've opened up a few things that uh, we can keep going and keep expanding upon. And the stuff that you're doing today is uh, very commendable, my friend. Thank you. For Rasslin' Memories Then and Now, I'm Glenn Broggett. So long.